If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, today we're just looking at three verses, uh, verses 17, 18, and 19. And I want to give you some context on where we find ourselves. We're in the middle of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, I may go back and forth calling him Saul or Paul, and I'll remind you that this is a man who has two names. Saul is his Hebrew or Jewish name, which is commonly used when he is in Jerusalem around Jews and with his fellow Pharisees. And he's also known as Paul, which is his Greek name, his Hellenistic name, the name he would go by in his hometown, Tarsus. So if I go back and forth between the two, you'll forgive me. But we see his conversion. And it is a dramatic conversion. Probably, I think you'd be hard-pressed to tell a conversion story more dramatic than this one. Where there's a man who has been one of the most fierce persecutors of the church, and he becomes one of the greatest servants of the church. And the question I want to begin with, and that's going to drive our thoughts over these three verses, is how does this happen? This unbelievable change in Saul's life, this complete 180 degree turn, how does it happen? How do you go from having the desire to exterminate Christian congregations to wanting to plant Christian congregations? Hopefully, I'll have a clear answer for you, but before... We get there. I want to introduce you to someone else from church history. Last week, I introduced, I think it was last week, I introduced you to Peter Waldo and the Waldensian Church, one of those forerunners um, of Martin Luther, one of the pre-Reformation reformers. And this week, I want to introduce you to another person, not so highly regarded as Peter Waldo, and this person is a British monk. He's a British monk who lived 300 years or so after the Apostle Paul. His name's Pelagius. Pelagius was a, not only a monk, he was an author, a teacher, and he was known for caring very much about morality. He wanted everyone to be moral. He wanted everyone to to hold themselves to high ethical standards and be good people and make good decisions and good choices. Now, and we, we hear that and we think, man, we could, we could use some more people like Pelagius. We could use some people like Pelagius in, in Corinth. We could use some people like Pelagius in, in Congress. There's a catch here. Pelagius cared very much about morality and that People would be good and make good decisions and choices. And he believed that we had the ability to do that. That we could be moral, we could be good, and we could do this entirely on our own. And we could do this on our own, he taught, because every person 
is born a blank slate. You are born morally neutral. You're born in a state of innocence. He taught that every baby who comes into this world comes just as pure as Adam when Adam was first placed in the garden. When it came to Adam, Pelagius Pelagius denied any notion of original sin that Adam's sin in the garden is transferred to his human descendants. He says, no, that's, that's not the case. Adam and Eve, their sin in the garden, eating the forbidden fruit, that sin is limited to them. It doesn't pass on to us. The consequences of their sin, eating the fruit and death coming to them, is limited to them, not us. So Adam, then for Pelagius, is more of just a bad example. Don't be like Adam. Adam listened to the serpent. He ate the fruit. He forgot the word of God. Don't be like Adam. Rather, be like Jesus. So just to recap, Pelagius taught we're born morally neutral, that we have an unimpaired moral ability to do what's right. We could choose the good. We can even do what is spiritually good and please God all on our own. And so we have to make the decision to not be like Adam. Don't be like Adam. Don't follow his example. Rather, follow Jesus' example. And in this belief system, Jesus, for Pelagius, is not so much a savior as he's just a good moral example. He's not a redeemer. He's a great moral teacher. And he laid out right living And you've been born with the ability to do it, so choose God, obey God. You've got the power to do it, so do it. Now, in laying all that out, there's probably not many of you walked into this room this morning knowing Pelagius' name. But you've heard this before, haven't you? That this idea that bad people make bad decisions and bad choices and follow bad examples and they don't choose God and they go to hell. And good people who make good decisions and follow good influences and do good and follow the example of Jesus, they go to heaven. And there's this idea that you have the ability to do this. You have the ability to choose rightly because... Maybe you haven't pressed it this far, but you're born morally innocent. You have true free will to be able to do what is good all on your own. And I think it's impossible to live in this culture and not hear this message. I promise your neighbor down the street, your coworker at the office, your family members, They may not know Pelagius' name, but many of them are believing the same thing he taught. And by the way, we can't give him all the blame here. This is not just something he taught. False teaching has been around all of human history. As G.K. Chesterton famously said, there are no new lies, no new heresies. 
Man is simply not that creative. Believing this worldview that Pelagius put forward is to believe a lie. And I don't know of a better example in Holy Scripture to disprove this teaching than the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Nowhere else in my mind is it clearer how wrong Pelagius was than in this conversion. In the Apostle Paul, we have a brilliant man. A man from the university town of Tarsus. We may not think of Tarsus on the same level as like Athens or Alexandria, but it absolutely was. Tarsus was the equivalent of a first century Oxford, England. So you have a brilliant man from a brilliant town. He's well-schooled. By the time we meet him, he has pretty much, again, I'll use the word equivalent, he's got the equivalent of four PhDs. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he studies under the most widely respected rabbi in Judaism at the time, Gamaliel. And for all this, for all this knowledge and study, and for all the credentials and degrees, we see that he is completely blind. He's blind to the things of God. For all his knowledge and IQ, he completely misunderstands the purpose and role of the law and the coming of the Messiah. And he remains in that state of blindness. He remains there until the Lord Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road and says, this ends now. In our text today, there's a big emphasis on eyes. Eyes and blindness and being able to see. And the grand gospel truth that, Lord willing, I'm able to communicate is that every human being is blind. Every human being is born spiritually blind. We are not a blank canvas. We are not morally neutral. We don't enter this world with unimpaired moral ability. We're blind. And it's not just us in the West. It's not just us Americans. Every person who has or will ever live in this world is by nature born spiritually blind. And they'll remain that way unless and until the Lord Jesus gives them sight. The ability to see is not something we do for ourselves. It's something that by his grace he does for us. Our master, whose name we bear as Christians, then is not just some good moral teacher whose example we are to follow. He's the long-awaited Savior and Redeemer of God's people. I love this description that Isaiah gives of Jesus Christ. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
That's who Jesus Christ is. And that's what he has come to do. And we need him more than we could possibly imagine. So before we get into our text, let's pray together. Father God, we will see this morning more than ever the need for you to open our eyes and see glorious things. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you would have for us. For your glory. Amen. Our text today is Acts 9, verses 17, 18, and 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The Lord Jesus has plans for Saul. You remember back in verse 16, you can see those plans. He He told Ananias to go because Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. He has special plans for Saul. He's saying, in my providence, I've given him exceptional academic training. I've prepared him in Tarsus and in Jerusalem. He is steeped in the books of Moses and the prophets. He knows his Torah. He knows the covenant. God of Israel has made a promise to send a Messiah to redeem and deliver his people. And yet he can't see it. He's blind to the truth of what this really is. He's blind, so blind in fact, that he's persecuting the very Messiah he claims to care so much about. And Jesus is saying, I must open his eyes because my purpose for him is that he would carry my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Jews. We looked last week, this chosen instrument is like a jar of clay. He's saying, this is my jar of clay. I'm going to put in him the treasure of the gospel and he's going to carry it with him everywhere he goes. And it's time he has eyes to see this treasure. So the Lord Jesus sends Ananias to Saul that he might restore his sight. In verse 17, we see that Ananias leaves. He has this command to go and leave the safety of his home and go to Saul because Saul is praying, we're told, that despite being physically blind, Saul is given this vision from the Lord wherein his his mind's eye, he can see that a man is coming. A man whose name means God is gracious. That's what Ananias means. A man whose name means God is gracious will come, lay his hands on him, and restore his sight. 
And again, I just want to point out the passivity of Saul in all this. He's just sitting and waiting. He's praying. He's fasting. But those are passive in and of themselves. There's nothing he can do but sit and wait on this servant of the Lord to come to him and restore his sight. So Ananias departs. Despite everything he knew about Saul, despite knowing the reasons why Saul was in Damascus in the first place, Ananias is obedient to the command of God and goes. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit working within him. Unlike Jonah, Ananias leaves and goes to minister to a natural enemy. And I just want to encourage you here. I want to encourage you by by reminding you that whenever you respond to the commands of the Lord with obedience, it is a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. And now maybe this is just you obeying promptings from the Holy Spirit. Or you read the scriptures and you see God command uh, something for us to do. And, and you do that thing he commands. Or maybe you're in the scriptures and you see something God commands us not to do. And so you refrain from doing that thing. I just want to encourage you and say, whenever you respond in obedience... And whenever you see others respond in obedience, rejoice, celebrate, praise God because it is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working within you and within others, changing our hearts. The Spirit was working in Ananias and he does as as he's commanded. He goes to this enemy. He walks right into the house. It's most likely an inn where Saul is staying. We don't have any details about introductions or explanations as to why he's there. We're just told he walks in and he approaches Saul. Maybe Saul was in bed. Maybe he was on his knees, face down to the floor. We don't know, but Ananias touches him on his head, his shoulders, his back. Ananias touches him and says these incredible words. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot there. How about beginning with the fact that Ananias calls Saul brother? Brother Saul. Now, this is not some casual Usage of the word. You know, if if I'm at a gas station and I'm walking across the parking lot and I open the door and there's a guy right behind me and I just hold the door and let him in so it doesn't slam on him, he might say, thanks, brother. That's not the usage here. It's not casual in that way. It's It's not just a normal way to address someone. Ananias is saying, Saul, Lord Jesus is doing a spectacular work. He is drawing you to himself, and because of that, you are my brother. When we look at the Greek usage of this word, brother is referring to a fellow member of the same religious community, specifically a fellow Christian. 
Ananias is talking to and addressing Saul as a fellow Christian, a fellow believer. This week I was listening to Albert Muller's daily podcast and uh, it may have been Thursday. He was talking about different revolutions in history and it was, he was talking about what these revolutionaries called each other and it was interesting. Uh, he specifically mentioned the French Revolution and the Re- Russian Revolution and the French revolutionaries, well, they all had names for each other. Um, every person, it didn't matter if you're a man, woman, boy, girl, child, they, they had names for, they had the same name for everyone. If you were a part of the French Revolution, they called everyone citizen. Citizen this, citizen that, everyone was a citizen. The Russian Revolution, I'm sure you probably know this, you could guess, everyone, whether man, woman, boy, girl, everyone was known as comrade. Comrade so-and-so. So with the French, everyone was known as a citizen. In Russia, everyone was known as comrade. And these names were given to each other. And they give you a lot of insight into the nature of the society the revolutionaries are trying to create. This name of citizen or comrade gives you insight into what they're trying to build. And... Thinking of that and then reading this, it's an interesting contrast. Where on one hand you have citizen and comrade, and on the other side you have brother. And not only brother, but Christians call each other brother and sister. We'll address those who are older than us in the faith as father or mother. Remember at at Presbytery, Whenever someone stands up, they'll introduce themselves and say their name and their church, and then they'll say fathers and brothers, and they'll go on with their business. These terms give us insight. Brother specifically gives us insight into the gospel. That, That we who were children of wrath are now children of God. We who were far off are now... Heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, Paul writes in Romans 8. Ananias is calling Saul brother. And by doing so, he's assuming the fact that God is also now his father. Saul is not only Ananias' brother, but God is also his father. It's amazing. This is a blasphemer of God. This is a persecutor of the church. And yet... He is adopted into the family of God. He's brought into the covenant community. It's amazing what that one word tells us. But then we keep going. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight. Now maybe I'm reading a little too much into it here. I don't don't think I am. Can you see what he's saying? He's essentially saying, Brother, the same Lord who struck you blind on the road is the same one who sent me to give you sight. He he blinded you, but he has sent me so that you would see again. The same one who took your sight is giving it back to you. This is a common theme that we see in Scripture. It's an important theme for us to remember. This idea of the Lord breaking something 
so that he may bind it up and heal it rightly. It's a great example in Hosea 6. This is Hosea 6, 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. You hear the images there. He has torn that he may heal. He has struck down that he will bind up. He's essentially killed us to revive us and raise us up. That's this image of the Lord breaking, but also binding up. You think of the well-known psalm, Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance. I'll give you a little bit of context. David starts by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Then you jump down about four verses. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There's that theme again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In my study, I found found an article that Paul Tripp a famous biblical, biblical counselor wrote on this text. And Tripp stated that broken bones is a physical word picture for the pain of redemption. How often do we think about this? That being redeemed, being saved can be painful. Can be painful. Paul Tripp says, quote, God delivering us from our addiction to self and sin and transforming us into his image isn't always a comfortable process. That's the understatement, (laughs) isn't it? It isn't always a comfortable process. In order to make our crooked and fickle hearts straight and loyal, God has to break some bones, end quote. Now, we understand this from, from medicine. I mean, even someone like me who, will, who has pretty much zero medical knowledge. Um, we understand this, that a, a broken arm or leg, if it doesn't heal properly or it heals crookedly, the doc will have to go in and re-break the arm, reset it so that it will heal properly. Spiritually speaking, that's what our God does in our hearts. It's what he does in the core of who we are. He will wound us so that he can heal us. He will break our bones so that we will be bound up. He'll break our bones through suffering and seasons of difficulty and seasons of sadness and loss and grief. And as David said, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Why? Because these broken bones, the pain of redemption, 
these hard seasons of suffering and grief, they show us what our soul needs more than anything. And that's him. John Newton writes about this in one of his hymns. I use this illustration all the time. I won't apologize for it, though. It's, it's his hymn, I Ask the Lord. It's also known as Prayer Answered by Crosses. And in this hymn, Newton writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's his prayer. But how does the Lord answer that prayer? By giving him crosses, by breaking bones, by making him feel the hidden evils of his heart. And after doing this, Newton responds desperately, Lord, why are you doing this? I am a worm. Will you pursue me to death? And then comes the answer. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thine all in me. Saying, I will break those bones and send trials to loosen your hands on the things of this world and so that you would find your all in me. And that's a thing to rejoice over. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Let the eyes you have blinded rejoice. Those could have been Saul's words. Because as he will soon find out in rightly seeing Jesus and in rightly seeing the gospel and in being filled with the Holy Spirit, he is about to see all of life in a completely new light. The same Lord who has taken his sight restores it. And so Ananias walks in and he lays his hands on Saul and he speaks these words. And then what happens? We read, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. It's an instantaneous miracle. He was blind, but now he sees. We're told that something physical falls from his eyes. If you, if you have a Greek dictionary and you look up the word scales, it means like fish scales. Something falls from his eyes, whether it's some type of film or scar tissue. There, there is a physical substance that is clouding his vision, but it falls away and now he can see. Now this physical reality, this physical falling away of scales, all of it is illustrating a deeper inward spiritual reality. That this man who is highly intelligent but has been living in the darkness of unbelief. His eyes have been opened and now he can see. And it's something he has to experience himself. Because again, he's the chosen vessel that's going to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so he needs to experience this gospel truth of I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
before he goes out and plants churches, before he preaches and evangelizes, he has to be delivered himself. Just imagine what it was like for Saul in this three-day period. From the moment he's apprehended on the road until the moment Ananias touches him and he sees, his experience was a lot like Jonah's, who was in the belly of the great fish for three days. He is, he is terrified. He is weighed down by guilt. He has a grieved conscience. He's fearing the wrath of God. And all those hours sitting in darkness until Jesus Christ delivered him and opened his eyes. Then we see his response. He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. He got up. Ananias baptizes him. And this baptism was symbolizing something else, that he'd been brought into the covenant community. So he received the sign, the sign that he belonged to God, the sign that he was submitting to the lordship of Christ. The sign that he was trusting entirely upon the grace of God. This brother is formally taken into the body of Christ. And then he also eats. You know, it had been a long time. It had been three days. He hadn't uh, eaten anything. No water, nothing. But now, having found the bread of life, he eats and strengthens himself so that he would be fit to go and serve wherever his Lord would send him. You know, as we end, talking about this conversion and the eyes of Saul being opened to behold the beauties of the gospel, I want you to think about your own story. Don't forget the fact that at one point you also were blind. You weren't born morally neutral. You and I were born sinners, spiritually impaired, spiritually dead, and we would have remained so if it hadn't been for the grace of God. Molly is a great sermon researcher for me, and uh, this past week she was listening to a sermon that Brian Habig preached back in, I think, 2017, and it was on Acts 9. It caught her eye, and so she listened to it and then shared it with me, and I I listened to it uh, Friday morning but I want to end the same way that Habig ended. He began by talking about those who were physically blind. You know, those people um, you, you'll see out maybe walking down a sidewalk with a cane. And he made the point that if you saw a blind person out on the sidewalk with a cane and they stumbled, you wouldn't laugh at them because they're blind. If, if, if they missed something and, and ran into a, to a bench or a sign, you, you wouldn't scorn them. You would pity them because they're blind. If, if they miss a step and stumble, you aren't going to be frustrated with them because they're blind. You aren't going to be angry for them because... They're blind. You know, when we think about spiritual blindness, there are those around us in our lives who don't know Jesus. 
and they can't see the gospel and they just don't get it. And they're hostile to it. And Habig is saying in the same way, pity them. Don't be frustrated at them because they're spiritually blind. Don't be angry at them that they're spiritually blind. And goodness gracious, don't think yourself superior to them because you can see and they can't. Because you didn't make yourself see. I didn't make myself see. You didn't remove the scales that clouded your vision. Jesus Christ did that. The only reason you can see the beauty of the gospel and I can see the beauty of the gospel is because of Jesus Christ. And when we see this and recognize it, it will produce humility within us and also sympathy for the unbelieving, those who are blind. Humility because the credit and glory all goes to him, not to us. And sympathy for those who are still where we were, walking in darkness. It should be our prayer that our Lord would continue to do his work. That he would continue to replicate this miracle in the lives of uh, those around us those we know who are blind and it should be our prayer that what he did in the life of Saul, he would continue to do every day. I want to just end with this statement on who our Lord is. That he's not just some good moral teacher that we follow his example, but he's our savior. This is from Isaiah 42. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to all its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. By his grace, may it be so. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that we were those who were once blind. We were those who could not see. We were far from you. We were hostile to you, but in your grace and your kindness, you opened our eyes. You opened our eyes to our sin and our guilt and also the answer that is found in the cross of Christ. Father, would this produce within us a humility where the finger of credit and glory is always pointed upward to you. And Father, would we pity those Would we have sympathy for those and great patience for those who are still walking in darkness? Give us prayerful hearts that, are, that plead for you to open their eyes that they might see as well. We ask this all in our Lord's name. Amen.